two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. Here are your hosts, Richard Pietro and Derek Alton. Welcome to another episode of Stories from the Open Gov. We are live at the Code for America Summit in Arlington, Virginia, and me and Derek are about to break down day two of this wonderful event with a little help from new friends. Maya Love is a data scientist at Coro in Northern California. Taeja O'Brien, the founder of Seam Social Labs, as well as Jessica Cole, the CEO and co-founder of U.S. Digital Response. Let's give them a big warm welcome. <laughs> what a way to end the summit. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> the party's still going on at this table. That's oh, right, absolutely. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's put it out there. We asked this question to start the end of day uh, wrap up. We're going to ask it here as well for you guys. What was the one big trend that you guys saw in the different breakouts and keynotes and main stage type of stuff uh, that, that really stuck with you? And whoever wants to go first, really. We'll go to Maya because okay, she looks yeah. so very certain of herself. <laughs> you know, always. It's, it's all up front. But I think a big thing that I've seen is how to get young people involved and engaged within government. I think this is my first time seeing how broad the civic tech space is, and I'm just curious in the ways in government having to adapt with the pandemic and various just um, ways that even President Biden's trying to recruit, but yet I think there's still great opportunity on social media, TikTok to show there's some really cool things happening. I, I know I attended a big um, initiative in Connecticut with Code for America where they sent out text messages on how to give out EBT and it's just like people are on their phones. So how can we also show the projects and the great triumphs on your phone um, in an engaging way that reaches everyone? Yeah. Um, I would say one of the trends I saw, which is very similar to that, is um, code design. It's a word you hear a lot, especially mm -hmm. um, when you're involved with Code for America. Um, but I saw a lot of sessions that were dedicated to code design and gave concrete examples of what it actually looks like to get feedback from communities or from your constituents and utilize that to solve problems. Um, I think it is challenging in a lot of ways because historically we may not have built the infrastructure for that, but there were very concrete examples of like agencies and institutions that are like, no, this is how we're getting our people in our communities involved, youth, aging population um, just across the board and that was exciting to see yeah I don't know if there's a session that didn't have co-design in it it was like every single session yeah was a group of people talking what they did together it was, like, it was everywhere building on that actually the thing that stuck out to me was that we are no longer just keeping up with the pace of change we mm -hmm. are as a field in many ways setting the pace of change mm -hmm. there are a lot of new government programs or new ways of delivering government services that have emerged over the past few years. And I've been going to the summit for um, a long time now. Okay. And this feels like one of the first years where I've really seen us talk about, we were in the room when a new policy was being designed mm -hmm. or when a, a the decisions about implementation were being decided for the first time. Yes, we're fixing systems that are already broken. Yes, we're fixing systems that are already challenged, but we have done the background work 
to start to be able to give feedback when Massachusetts first passes paid family and medical leave, when okay. yeah. Colorado is doing something similar, when you know we are delivering things remotely for the very first time. Yeah, wow. I think that's actually a great point because one of the things I heard a lot in the sessions was iterative, which when you think about government, that's not the first word you think about. <laughs> but like I saw quite a few people like product designers, product managers speak. I heard about like wanting to hire more product managers and understanding you need to be more agile. And I was like, yeah, that's something we need to like effectively work on and implement um, to really build out better digital services within government. Actually, I will quick uh, uh, plug right now. We did a speaker's corner earlier today, uh, much like we did with Maya, actually. Uh, he actually got a job here. He's a student oh, wow. who found a job here. Like we wow. asked him, like, what was the That's highlight? Yeah. 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 I got a job. It's like, wow. <laughs> I mean, how do you top that? Yeah. <laughs> And that's so, I think, refreshing to see because I was in a session today um, with Google and how sometimes that partnership with the private sector, from what I've seen sometimes, the government is more responsive to the private sector. But mm. today, them coming and saying, no, we need y'all's help and hearing from representatives from Louisiana to Kentucky saying, well, we have this two-on-one system. How can we partner in that being a little bit more setting the pace? And it's I think it's refreshing to see governments now setting the pace versus perhaps responding to the private sector mm, as yeah. to me that relationship was a little bit um yeah just unbalanced i would i would say so i i was shocked by that to be honest well and, and one of the things that i mean sort of talking about what you're talking just about how things are shifting this summit i feel like wow this this group of people this idea of civic tech and and you know how do we change government has always felt like it's been like a bunch of you know wonks on the side who do this because they're passionate about it. This conference, it feels like we're starting to go mainstream. This is starting yeah. to become big. This is starting yep. to become something that governments are, are are taking more seriously and really starting to engage with in meaningful ways, which is so incredibly exciting to see. Which, if I could build on that, also means we have, with this great Spider-Man line, with great power, mm. comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Which is just, but genuinely, I do believe that there is a new recognition of the onus we have on ourselves to mm -hmm. recognize that we hold some power now in the mm -hmm. room, that we are not just upstarts who are bringing a new perspective, that at times us choosing to push back and, and say, for example, that uh, this program and the way that you're trying to implement could do more harm than good, and we can measure mm -hmm. that now. Yeah. Um, it, I, there was a lot more discussion on the main stage and mm -hmm. in sessions yeah. about actually taking those moments of recognition and not just chatting among the in-group of the rest of us, mm -hmm. but bringing that back up to the policymakers, making that legible yeah. so that we can make sure that they can better serve the communities that they say they are trying to co-design for and with. Yeah. That's actually one of the reasons I really love open data, just in general, like transparency, accountability. Saw some great examples of that here, but that's like a huge component of it. Um, building that like community determination to be like, well, we said this and here it is, concrete information. What are we gonna do about mm -hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's interesting because with that comes this, this whole question around power, right? Okay. So now that we have more power, we have to be more aware of how we use that power and who has that power. And with that also comes a greater uh, responsibility around accountability, that people are gonna hold us to task more in what we're doing. And I think, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. But it's also exciting because that means that we do have a chance to really move the needle on things in a way we didn't have before. Yeah. Uh, and it's something I know I'm, I'm excited. I'm terrified, but also excited to see how this moves forward. 
I mean, I'll go ahead, go ahead, Maya. No, I was just saying, when I hear accountability, it's also care. A lot on the main mm. stage, it was tech is a service, but with service comes customer service. And so how are you really understanding your constituents? How are you understanding their reflective cultures? And I think that's something that is mainstream, but also has been ignored a little bit. And so yeah. really striving in the future and just what y'all are both doing in your work is how can we return back to that customer care so that we as civic tech can start competing with various sectors that are showing a little bit more care. Absolutely, absolutely. And for me that, I guess, you know, what was my big Kate uh, trend for today is this idea of like, emotion is something that we're talking more about. Like, it used to be, we talked about tech, we talked about, you know, civic innovation. It was very technical, it was very objective, metric-based, data-based. Now we're talking about emotions. We're talking mm -hmm. about human beings. Yeah. I mean, in the last session we had with Amanda, I, I talked about this idea of love. And today, like that's the, the theme for today was like love. Yeah. Whether it was you know people talking explicitly about bringing love to their work, or just how much they love that they're doing, the passion that came through everybody's what they were saying, you know that for me is there's a new depth to what we're talking about now, and and that's what makes it more human centered. It makes it more real. It makes yeah. it more raw. Uh, that was my big takeaway from today. Well, let me ask everyone this question then, and I'm gonna because. There's a lot of happiness at the table right now. <laughs> spicy, <laughs> spicy hour. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, I've been in this space for about 10 years in some capacity or another. Jessica, it sounds as though you've been in the space for a long time as well. And Derek, you've sort of been around for a while. But I'm going to throw a term out there. And it's more to have a discussion, not necessarily that I believe what we witnessed today was what was I'm about to say, which is open washing. There's a lot of efforts that are out there that seem very open and transparent, accountable and engaging and have the values that we're preaching. But when you go a little bit deeper behind the surface and some of the early open data portals were an example of that mm. where all these open data sets are present, uh, but then you look at the open data sets themselves and they're crap, yeah. right? Um, from a policy perspective, we're talking about a lot of policies being changed. Do you think that what you're seeing and witnessing will actually have the impact that you think you're going to have? hope to have? Mm. I'm a big believer in people's behavior being changed by the peer group that they consider themselves to be among. Mm. So do I believe that some of the work that we're doing is not up to the full possible standard? And in some ways, the standard that must be met because we all hold this work with a great degree of care and a great degree of responsibility and um, absolutely not. I, you, absolutely we have a long way to go on any one of these individual projects mm -hmm. and if you scratch the surface um, that's also because we are human. There was a um, uh, one of the professors today said something really uh, remarkable, which was you can't expect the superhuman out of the human. Like some of this is, yeah. is we have to build the right systems. But I, what I do think is happening is that we are coming together to create a peer group with certain values, with mm. certain norms. And what that allows us to do is hold each other accountable to make sure that those norms are met. And I feel that. I feel that regularly when we're doing new things at USDR there is a degree to which I think like who in the field has already thought about this and would expect a higher bar from us and how do we start to meet that bar that our peers might expect. Yeah, I, I think tied to that, um, something that I have always fundamentally believed and maybe it might be a hot take is everyone has always seen like public sector versus private sector, right. different like 
different approaches, different like approaches to impact and like different outcomes. I don't believe that. At the end of the day, it all has an impact on what we do environmentally, mm -hmm. socially. And so I think what's really beautiful about this conference is everybody's here. There is no divide between private, public. It's like everyone's here for a common good, common values, common themes. And across the board, we're all trying to like make the systems that help our communities and us as human beings have better experiences. And so like, how do we do that? Where here's a million different ways we can talk about it and collaborate together, but it gets rid of that whole sector divide. And I'm putting up air quotes because like, it's a <laughs> fake divide. It's one we made right. up mm. and it really forces us to be like, all right, throw out the 501c3, throw out the corporation. How do we fix this? Like, cause there's problems and we need to address them. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, first step to fixing something is admitting, yeah, we got a problem in the first place. So, yeah. It's interesting. Cause like, I would say that is an area that I've grown the most from the summit is that, cause I came into it very much with that divide of sectors. Like, and the big question is I know all these sectors need to play together. Um, I just know how that happens because they have such different incentives. So I, I definitely like, I do disagree to a certain extent cause I, that there is, differences in experiences mm -hmm. and there are different incentives that come from different sectors uh so those differences do exist um but you're right it, it isn't as cut and dry or a clear line as i think i had in my head and the examples we saw throughout the summit were these it was human beings that yes they sat within institutions that had different restrictions and realities and constraints and incentives but they're human beings and you saw these human beings come together around common passions and and values that transcended all of that and that they aligned around that and then they tried to figure out how to make sense of that within the context they sat within but before they went back to that that context and those restrictions and those realities they first had that common human humanity and that common vision of what they're doing that helped them work together through that and that was a, a reframe for me i hadn't seen anything mm -hmm. like that before and yeah. it was it's so exciting one thing that this conversation is bringing up for me is uh, if this is in some ways the collection of our field and mm -hmm. some of the conversations that are happening, there are conversations that are not happening uh, in this space that I think mm -hmm. are really valuable or that are happening only on the sides. Okay. And that might be an interesting topic just for things that we do. So for example, something that those listening who weren't present might not be aware of is last night there was an informal event uh, that was hosted that was basically a fail fest. And this was an open mic night oh, where wow. people could come who had been in the space for a while and who could under Chatham House rules or Vegas rules, depending on whether you spend more time in Chatham House <laughs> or Vegas. Uh, <laughs> but you, they could, we, the, the community could basically share the projects where they had high hopes and they mm, ran completely wow. into a wall. And Love what that. happened? And I think it's really interesting that that kind of sharing needed to happen extracurricularly here mm. when you could imagine a version of this where we were actually all saying yes let's celebrate the shiny and let's also give some platforms to the stuff that we all thought would work that turned out yeah. to have way more complexity to it from one angle or another uh, so i'm curious about the is there a version of this community is there a version of this conversation mm. where okay. we could make more space so, for some of that so i have a question that comes out because this this it was amazing. We should probably give a shout out to the Beck Center, though, was the yes. one that, that put on right. that that, that, that show, or the uh, the session. Um, Hold on a second. Uh, sidebar, 
What is this? I'm hearing people oh, snapping instead like of clapping. Poetry. It's like a instead of a clap, it's like yes, like you I don't, don't give, know. Give, you don't, don't just give yeah. the speaker, remarks. but you show that you're supportive yeah. of. Yeah, is that the reason? Yeah. 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 It's, 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 I hear like you know, I don't know, a little poetry slam. Yeah, it, it really yeah. comes yeah. to that poetry. Yeah, that's the ethos it comes mm. from. I've yeah. seen it too. I was like, I feel so old all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just second nature now. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. All right, sorry. I saw Maya doing it a couple of times. I just had to ask. Sorry, go ahead, Derek. You have a question so, about back there. So yeah. what this what this raises for me is this interesting question around transparency balanced with safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on one hand, we all talk about how important transparency is uh, to build trust uh, and to build accountability and you know bring more people into the fold. The flip side of that is that when, and I know speaking as a public servant, this is something I see all the time, that public servants, when they're in a room with other public servants, there's a freedom. We all recognize that there's a common experience yeah, we have. Yeah. And so fluidity and people are more honest. But it's really, uh, as soon as you bring in other players who aren't public servants, it just, the public servants just quiet right down because like, I don't have permission to speak. I have to be much more careful what they mm. say. And so safe space allows us to have these authentic, meaningful conversations about, you know, failure or anything like this. How, I, d- I don't know how to, square that circle or circle that square how much what the term is but that bounce between transparency and openness with safe space and authenticity actually i do have something for you real quick on that one this is this goes back a long time ago Uh, i uh, I turned 35 years old and i said i'm gonna that is a long time ago (laughs) (laughs) it was it was it really was i'm glad you said like a decade ago here I hate being a hypocrite to my own values, and I was asking governments and institutions to be more open in their work, and I was like, well, what about myself? What does it mean to be like an open citizen? And I created sort of what would become sort of the principles for leading an open life. Mm. And coincidentally, one of the values that I, as part of my testing for, you know, I, I dedicated my 35th year to, to finding those principles, was strangely enough, transparency or a lot of details is not the answer to that, that trust element that we want to have. It is when there's no trust, mm. right? Because uh, the analogy that I used at the time was if you're in a relationship and your spouse goes out on Friday night and you don't trust them, you want all the details, <laughs> right? Where are you going? Who are you going with? And then you're, you're, yeah. you're reaching out to them on every hour on the hour and all that kind of stuff, right? Send me pictures. Exactly, right? <laughs> and, but if you do trust your spouse, they go out on Friday night and you're like, have fun, I'll see you in the morning. A lot of the times transparency is a function of the lack of trust that's required. And because we don't trust the government, at least the citizenry, don't trust <laughs> yeah. the government, they want those details mm. because we need it. And maybe there will be a time where that transparency is not required. We're just like, all right, government, I trust you. Yeah. But it goes both ways. Like citizens don't trust government, but government doesn't trust citizens. And that's yeah. one of the challenges as well. I think that's a really great point because someone who I stand over, um, if y'all are familiar, um, Audrey, um, who is the digital minister of Taiwan. Audrey and, Tang. Yeah, Audrey Tang literally describes government as an omni-channel experience. Oh, wow. It is an open conversation. It is a dialogue. It does not end. And I think the thing I think about all the time when you brought up that question is like, why aren't those like safe spaces here? And it's like, you know, maybe this big conference. Um, who's going to be the first person who does that? I like to poke the bear a lot. So I'd be like, all right, kick in the door. Let's do it. Like, let's mm. like 
let's host a session then. Like, what's stopping us, right? And, like, if they say no, like, all right, like, maybe maybe we'll have, like, that in the expo or something. But, like, mm-hmm. I think it takes courage to do that because, like, you want that transparency and you want that trust. But, like, you just got to, like, kick down the door and be like, I'm going to have an entire session and talk about all the failed programs I did. Mm-hmm. I think Boom. It's, <laughs> and, like, yeah. I think this is actually interesting enough. I think this is also where privilege comes in. I think mm. it takes a certain amount of privilege to have the really security to be able to take that risk. Yeah. And I think this is where people with privilege and leadership, that matters to model that and, and mm-hmm. to, cause it's, it needs to be, I think ultimately it needs to be people with privilege and, and with leadership and, and power to be the first ones to kick in that door because they have the security to do that. Whereas I think a lot of people, they kick in that door and they get kicked out pretty quickly. Yeah, right? And, and, and that, yeah. that, I think that makes it challenging. And I think that goes back to the question of the summit may seem really happy and just, but I think there is a steep incline that we have with communicating that level of overcommunication, I should say, in order to get back that trust to understand just because there's so many smart in- individuals here, but hey, who's not here that could be like, you know what? I don't know what that means. I know, exe- again, in the executive order, like scrum master, grandma's like, what's a scrum? Is that something I scrub my toilet? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Like, is that, is that they, who they want? But really just- Is that who they want? <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. Right, sure. But it's, it's also just going the extra step to not assume even these broad terms that might be just acronyms can commonly understood just commonly understood and so really getting down and over educating over communicating and it might seem tiring but i think in the long term Mm. what we haven't seen yet is that type of investment because that trust is a seed it takes time to grow and you won't see all the the products in one to three years maybe five so that's something that i think I'm just curious how that is also thought about as summit is what does investment look like? I'd love to hear from you, Jessica, on that side, because uh, with U.S. Digital Response, your job is to essentially in a lot of different ways train the public service into generating trust. Have you had any sort of interesting experiences in that work that maybe you can bring to light that like I wish... I really wish more people knew about this or adopted these values or this is like the, the A student of my classes. <laughs> um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Mm. So I think what's already been being discussed resonates a lot. So a couple of things that we've seen and at this point just as a baseline, we have placed about 700, actually at this point over 800 people uh, as pro bono volunteers uh, in about 330 different engagements uh, over the course of two years. And one of the things we've really learned is people have to come with respect for and a desire to be curious and to learn Mm. other cultures Mm. and recognize actually that you are entering another culture um, and there is cross training. So we do an onboarding session for any of our volunteers that has a certain degree of Gov 101. Uh, And Gov 101, believe it or not, also includes things like why. Why are these things norms? It's not just Gov 101 is your government partner might sometimes want to talk on the phone because emails and written documentation is really sensitive. It's because that is open records is something we've decided is important uh, Mm. in government. And here are the downstream effects of that decision. Um, Similarly, for our government partners, there's some translating work for them as well to say, uh, we have this this phrase at, at USDR that's demos, not memos. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we talk about the importance of actually 
uh, we're not going to just write down out of a conversation something and then talk to you again in four weeks because right. we know that's what you're used to. No, we're going to talk to you for the first time and we're going to actually try to build a prototype by the time we get on our second call with you. Mm. And we're going to use that to drive the conversation forward. So there's a certain amount of acclimation and explanation and, and willingness to understand and appreciate where each other's coming from and why um, that has proven really valuable. We actually just internally, culturally, uh, something that I've loved is we have town halls that are open to our staff and our volunteers and we have civic education at the end of each one of them that's breaking down some civic fact and we're talking about doing the same thing with technology. It's, it's kind of like the bridging of the worlds as an open mm -hmm. and constant dialogue that we're never gonna perfect but is, is worth working on. Mm -hmm. One thing I just, it, the, demo's not, uh, the demo's not memos line, which I think is fantastic, but it, it reminds me that um, there's, there's a conference in Canada, Forward 50, it's the big digital government conference. Love Forward 50. And mm. um, yeah, I've met, met Audrey Tang there actually. Oh. That's where, uh, along with many like P. Andrews, a whole bunch of my heroes, I met them at Forward 50. This past year, I think it was this past year, we had someone, there was someone there who spoke who was fantastic, I think from California actually. Mm. Um, but she pushed back on that question. She's like, except there are times when memos really matter. This was Joy, I think. I think it was Joy Bonnaroo, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And she, she, Totally right. And and the adaptation that has come out uh, by someone who worked closely with Joy, Krista Kanellakis, who now works at USDR uh, from California, her she's pushing us to say demos and then the memos. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But okay. I think there is exactly that recognition, different tools in different moments for mm. different purposes. And okay. that is okay at each side of the culture. Well, I think that that's where there's learning on both sides, right? So I think coming out of the you know the, the tech space, it's all about demos. Right. In government space, <laughs> it's all about memos. <laughs> and and it's like okay, we got to figure out you know there are places for each. And then how in government we use memos way too much, and as a result, we don't have any demos. Uh, on the flip side, I think in tech space, tons of demos, but sometimes those memos are what like demos don't scale. Demos are, and there's also like there's different things that memos do that demos don't demos. Don't do. Wow. Memos, Tongue twister. Demos. Memos. <laughs> yeah. She sells seashells by the seashore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think it's just that balance and figuring out that balance and the bringing together those cultures. There's a lot of beauty that can happen, but there's a lot of miscommunication that can happen mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think one of another one of my takeaways is something I think that's happening really in the United States that I haven't seen other places the same way is this role of these third party organizations like your organization, mm -hmm. US uh, Digital Response is an example of a third that, that serves as that mediator to help bridge these different worlds, these mm -hmm. different cultures, and help that come, those groups come together and create the change that they all want to create. I imagine actually both of your organizations are doing something similar. Coro certainly yeah, similar. No, we, we're, um, I mean, encouraged to always argue the other side and just sit in that and feel it, but it's definitely opened up a world of conversation of, that's what I was talking about, the investment or pace. We went to a farm about three weeks ago and just learning how policy, the memo side, that's that's great, but you know when you're trying to grow plants and technology and incorporate AI in that, that takes years and of risk yeah. and how do you balance the memos with the risk? And I think, to your point, merging these two in this weird dance, I don't even know what to call it. TikTok will figure it out. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's hard and it takes a lot of patience, but how do you at least what is the formula for patience for people to be like, okay, things are happening, mm. but we might not see it yet. Someone make us the remix for yes. demos and memos and patience. <laughs> yeah. And they have a whole dance and it goes I'm viral. ready for it. Yeah. I, actually, you know, I want to riff off of that a little bit because I, I, there's a perspective, I wish it was my own, but that was taught to me about pilots. 
which sort of falls a little bit into demos world. And I think you know where I'm going with this because I bring it up all the time, which is all the time, all the time, <laughs> because it is an issue because it is a very safe environment for governments to try new things, mm. but it's also a very safe environment for governments to destroy new things, right? Because mm. it's a pilot. It has an end date. It's not integrated as part mm. of business as usual. So, while pilots and demos and things of that nature are great in and of themselves, what it is that can be done, or what is, what is it, have you guys heard today and yesterday that can make sure that those pilots and those demos actually become part of the iterative process as opposed mm -hmm. to just a standalone side thing that could be built as open washing? Yeah, so one of the things we do, um, we work with a lot of government agencies, and one of the things we've realized is that it's not just about the pilot or the demo. It is a, we treat what we do as like systems change, right? If you're gonna really incorporate community feedback as a data point into policy, program design, whatever, you can't just be like, oh yeah, it's on a side, cool, whatever. So what we've started to do is build it out as an education process. Mm. And outside of the fact that there's opportunity for a pilot and for you to treat it as something like that. Um, we also have like workshops where we'll do a lunch and learn and we'll be like, talk to us about your community feedback process. Uh, what's harrowing? That's what's good. scary? Oh, and I then, love like, that that's word. Good. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that is good. Uh, I, I, I dropped an SAT word, I think. Um, but <laughs> snaps for that. We're bringing back the snaps. Um, but yeah, but like we, we make that as a part of the process. So it's not just the demo, but we, we just start off with like, where do your problems live? And like, let's talk mm -hmm. about that and then let's demo it. One of the other things that we've integrated, um, cause we are a tech company, we're a public benefit corporation, but like, again, the systems changes, like, all right, so we want all of the data that goes on our platform, we'll create open data stories from it. You don't worry about that, we will transform that into an open data story. And at the end of the day, if, cause we can't control how government works, and we care deeply about the people and empowering communities. So at the end of the day, if said data, nothing happens from the community feedback you got, it's an open data story. So how do we engage the community and the public around it? So that problem just doesn't stop and the pilot is just like, okay, well that's it, throw that away, that's not gonna solve anything. We still have some product or outcome from it that can be put to work. And it's like a full cycle of a process. And it's, you know, it's arduous, but like it allows us to like, still keep that conversation going it is right. just as the end if the pilot ends one concept i've been playing with in my brain so it's still very rough uh, be gentle <laughs> is the idea of empowered curiosity versus kind of lazy curiosity uh, from the perspective of a government and to me lazy curiosity is when you basically ask for help or you start a project or you start a pilot just because you think it might be interesting or you're noticing that there's some real hot concept that you want to be saying that you're doing work in or you happen to have a resource available and so you kind of are it's like the spaghetti at the wall thing but mm. you haven't identified any change you are willing to make based on the results of that pilot empowered curiosity to me is when you're actually putting something in motion tied mm. to a specific decision you're trying to make using the results of what you're running and i see this in in some a lot of parts of my background kind of collide here i used to work in innovation and economic development for a small city and so we would set up pilots often and the, and 
the best way to do it would be to tie it to what happens next. Like if people use this bike share, does that mean we change our policy around bike lanes, you know, or similarly today, the, the panel that I'm thinking about was, uh, there were, uh, two people from Nava who really were talking about embedding a program specialist or a kind of a policy strategist onto your delivery team to go and sync up with policymakers as you're building a product oh, so that yeah. you can identify which policy decisions still need to be made that will impact the delivery of that product. Mm. And you are taking whatever you're learning on the delivery side and you are feeding it back up and pressuring them to make those decisions and then yeah. you know going back and forth oh. on it. And so to me, I would love to see us as a field push more for, I think there's probably a better term, but for now empowered curiosity on the part of our partners to say yeah. like, if you're gonna ask for our help, if you're gonna ask for our resources, then what decision are you gonna make based on how this pilot goes? First of all, real quick, I have to take a moment of pause and say, this has been awesome. <laughs> Honestly, this is easily like I've, I, this is probably going to be our 60th episode that I'm going to be posting out there. It's got to be one of the best ones. You guys have been tremendous. Uh, we're you. the 30 minute mark. We're going to keep going if you guys are up for, for keeping going All on right. this. But I just want to make note. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I, trust me, if we don't have the largest audience in the world. But I've not, yet. not yet, not, not yet. yet, not yet. But that I have a feeling uh, <laughs> Tyasia, Maya, and Jessica will will, will be reinvited for these roundtables oh, that way. That. I think we're we're developing a, a pretty good chemistry, some synchronicity, which is a word that Derek is really fond of. Uh, but Derek, you looked as though you wanted to say something. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say on this topic. Um, uh, so the first thing I was going to say is like the, the term that so I come out of the social innovation space, and the term we often use for this is the innovation trap. Okay. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you get the whole panarchy loop, and the innovation trap is part of that that part of the change. Where you know the trap is that you want to try these new ideas, but you're afraid to scale it. You're afraid to do anything with that. But where I actually want to go with this is I'm also part of a nerdy government book club because I'm a huge nerd, <laughs> and this month's book is and I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but it's a book that was written by the team that's behind GDS. So they created GDS, and then they went went off and they created Public Digital. Mm -hmm. But a bunch of them wrote a book about their experience, about their learnings, and it's fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. And one of the things they talk about is how they tend to stay, they say, if you hear the word innovation, probably stay away from that. Because if something's called innovation, it's me meant it's meant to stay over there. It's mm -hmm. not meant to be mainstream. Mainstream, we don't use the term innovation for mainstream. Um, we use term innovation for something that we try over there that's new and we're not going to scale. Instead, they said focus on delivery. Delivery is what you focus on. Um, now, I don't fully agree with that. <laughs> I think there's a life cycle to that. So something starts in innovation, and then it comes mainstream. And, and we need to recognize, and we need to be much more intentional about that journey. Um, so I won't just dismiss innovation like they do in a book. And that maybe is not a fair characterization, a characterization of the book. But the point is delivery. Delivery is how you get past that, by focusing on delivery, by focusing on, on results, and by putting that at the center of what you do. That is how you get past the innovation trap, because that's what you're measuring and that's what matters. That's one thing that I heard throughout our interviews that we did, and we did a lot, was output versus outcomes, mm. Mm. right? And okay. everyone's more focused of, like it's not so much the, the ROI and the sort of like, what did you generate? Like we want, and I heard this once, ROO, mm. the return on objective. What were you hoping to do with this initiative or this movement or thing along those lines? And, and along those lines, um, I want to throw this question to, to all you guys because we, we've been very good at talking about some other people's works, and we've also been very good about talking some of our own work. I want to talk now about some things that 
you think that you don't know enough about, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether it be a particular region of the world, one of the things that in a lot of my podcasts I try to do is, is go to different parts of the world um, because, uh, once again, as a good old white Canadian boy, <laughs> we're very insular mm -hmm. that way. We don't see the rest of the, of the world, and it's important to give that perspective. But it could be about on a technology front. It could be on a policy mm -hmm. front. I'll give you an example real quick. I was at a session with uh, uh, her name is Daisy. She is uh, the co-founder of the Code the Dream, mm -hmm. okay. and uh, she yeah. had a tremendous session about training uh, uh, individuals in, in you know lower-income communities. And the first thing when she opened it up that it's free training that everyone came in, and not necessarily the people that were required that that was targeted, really, yeah. you know, were coming in and registering. So she took a very strong approach, like we gotta go into like deep Alabama and Louisiana and other places mm -hmm. and it's particularly target those individuals. And at the same time, and I hope, I really hope other people catch on to this. It's, it's people will come into the program, but then life happens, especially yeah. if you're in a lower sort of, you know, income bracket. And she said, a lot of times when you enter these schools, once you're out, you're out, right? Yeah. She said, no, it's fine. Take a break. We understand. Take the four, six four to six weeks or two months or whatever. You'll always be welcome back mm. as, as someone who registered. And, and I thought that was fascinating approach to, to being adaptive and flexible, not just from a work from home perspective, which a lot of us wanted that flexibility, but from a studying perspective, I was like, wow, that's yeah. so great. So going back to my original question, <laughs> I'd love to learn more about how training and educating is being done differently to make sure that we reach those people. But is there anything in particular for you guys that you wish you knew more about or perhaps feel deserves a, a greater profile, more highlights that you just don't hear from? I think one of the things here in particular um, is it's, I think it, the term digital divide got really popular during yeah. you know the whole pandemic yeah. and it existed before that but it was just like highlighted extra and i think as people who are coming together from like problem solving for constituents and technologists like we are talking about digital services and then we just also need to acknowledge like there's a tremendous amount of people that don't even have access to basic internet here in america yes that exists like so how do we approach that as like our problem and um, and solve for it. And I think just like, I'd love to hear and learn more about that and not just from like, oh, if we get broadband here, that'll solve the problem because like that still costs money and people still can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So like mesh grids, like what, what are we looking at from a tech standpoint that can be an affordable, if not low cost or no cost service? So when we talk about digital responses, we can actually talk about it in an equitable way and not just like, for everyone who has internet, this is how we can make it better. Um, so those are all the things that like I really like talking and learning more about. That's good. I, I think for me, something around education, there's so much money with the boot camps, apprenticeships, like breaking down the four-year alternative. Mm. But I'm curious what it looks like to also provide the education around the family and, and both upskill there's so many different households multi-generational that it doesn't have to just start with the individual and sometimes i love that program with you know take four weeks off but how does it how can we educate others to spread that education in a way that 
then they can inspire and, and start help pouring more into in tech because you don't have to be so technical. There's so many non-technical roles, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that will really touch on upskilling a population um, of just older folks. And they, they you know, elders, you got to respect them. So that's something that I wish I knew more about and, and how communities really um, would just welcome that. Ooh. There are so many conversations, <laughs> including the ones that I have. I will take the opportunity to list a few. Um, one, that on the community level, we are not talking enough about the tremendous work of mutual aid networks over mm -hmm. the past two years. Mutual yeah. aid networks. Yes. This, these are basically community-based groups who played a... Um, the role that government honestly was unable to play in a like lot of cases. Like bringing meals um, and things of that nature. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, still yeah. are, still yeah. are running community fridges, still yeah, are yeah, running yeah. bail funds, still are like they, these, these groups, uh, they, they um, helped make sure that people could organize and get the vaccines that they needed. Like mm. to yeah. me, if we are truly looking to experts, like this is where the experts have been over the past two years. Right. And we've done some work at USDR to try to learn and collaborate and, and tap into, but I would love to do even more. I would love to create more platforms for people who have really been, been organizing at the local level and doing service delivery at the local level yeah. uh, to talk to them because yeah. that's where the hustle and the, the hacking and all the, the, just like the work has been going on the, on the, kind of like upstream of community side, I really want to talk about some of the things that have changed in our political context over mm. the last two years since we've all gotten together. Those things include operating government services in a pandemic era that is stretching government workforces to do some work yeah. remotely for the first time yeah. in a meaningful way and others not. We didn't even talk about that this whole conference. And that's yeah. crazy to me because that's such a, a, it was just like the silent truth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Day three of summit yeah. coming yeah, soon. Exactly. <laughs> the second major change is that a lot of governments have been so cash strapped for so long and now yeah. there are funds flowing through. Why aren't we talking about the ways that we need to get in front of those uh, mm -hmm. dollars to help inform the way that they are delivered over the next real seven years. This is maybe a US centric um, you know, discussion point, but it is one that I think uh, needs to be talked about. And then the third one is we um, have some political leadership uh, now who really, I, I have a friend who's doing this as a minister in Montenegro. You know, We certainly have mm -hmm. folks at the federal um, government here and local and state and in Canada from, um, I would love to have those folks talk to us about once they've gotten into these positions of political influence, what are they getting and not getting mm. from the people on the ground who are the, the um, civic technologists on the ground uh, that are helping or hurting them and making the case for the policy changes or implementations they want to see. So that's my laundry list. I love that you're bringing that up because it is a forgotten silver lining of the pandemic, I think, that... I remember, uh, Derek, you particularly were very active in Canada in activating the open government, open data community during those first three or four months. Like, we have a whole bunch of great people that are technically skilled. They have great, you know, they have time to do something because right. a lot of us were sort of shuttered in our homes kind of deal. And we had essentially a mobilized community that was ready to help. Mm. And for the most part, they were left twiddling their thumbs. Give me something to do. And we try to organize ourselves. And, and then a lot of times, even the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing within the communities themselves. 
some were able to organize, but I think for the most part, I, I called it a silver lining because it truly identified the, the, the human spirit, hmm. right? Sort mm-hmm. of that, that thing of yeah. like, in, in scarcity is when the human, humanity triumphs a lot of the times. I hope we haven't lost that mm-hmm. and that we can still find yeah. ways to tap into it. Yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting experience. So mobilizing, because basically, yeah, people are like, crisis, we're here, let's do it. And it was interesting because I, I had friends on, in multiple places within the system. So I had friends who were like, I'm ready to go, let's, let's do it. And I had other friends who were like deep in the system being like, oh, I, I want to give you stuff to do, but it is so much chaos here that I don't even know what to give you at this point. We're not, we're not ready. It was almost like we're not ready yet. <laughs> it's like hurry up and wait kind of situation because they were, they had to deal like, you know, the working everybody remote was really interesting. Um, a friend of ours was a chief digital officer for the government of British Columbia at the time. And she was talking about the crazy amount of work that they had to go and basically move their whole entire workforce remote in a week when they weren't designed to do that. And that is, you know, government of British Columbia is probably a couple hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. That, that is a massive, massive yeah. undertaking that involves yeah. getting technology, giving them like equipment, literally getting equipment, thousands of laptops out the door, tablets out the door like that, but making sure that they're secure and, yeah. and, you know, and safe. And, and that's just to make sure government keeps functioning. And so that's what she was trying to figure out. She said, it was this Herculean effort. Meanwhile, you know, there I am like, hey, Jamie, do you think we can do the help? And she's like, I don't have time for this right now. Um, you know, come back and, and <laughs> talk to me in a couple yeah. weeks because I'm just trying to make sure government keeps functioning. Uh, it, was, it was a crazy, particularly those first couple months were wild uh, from yeah. all across the different perspectives. Um, but you're right. It, it is interesting that that stuff hasn't been talked about more. Um, I think the part, like one of the things that's interesting is that things are shifting. We had this window and now things are shifting back. So one of the things you were talking about, like all of a sudden all this money went into governments and all it's like billions of dollars was <laughs> it's being flown into government. Yeah. Trillions of dollars was flowing into governments all over the world. But now I'm seeing all that, the, the taps are being shut off, right? Mm. You know, and, and now, you know, the, the, the drum beats of austerity are coming. And so government, people in government are getting ready to like all and have that cash disappear very quickly. And, but the cash will disappear, but the expectations won't. And that's the big thing of how do we manage that, that, that dilemma. Um, it's going to be a messy, it's going to be a messy couple of years. And this is where I think the relationships that we talked about here at the summit between government, uh, you know, and on all these different other players that are at the table is going to be so important to navigate what's going to be some really big challenges. And hopefully the relationships and the trust that has been built through events like this will help us navigate what's going to be some very challenging. We've got some rough waters ahead. Well, uh, go ahead, Maya. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just like, I mean, I like a challenge. And <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like, you know, it's, it's going to be rough. But I think what we've seen with the pandemic is there's communities and all these efforts who are coming together and like, yeah. hey, we're here. And, you know, we know this is a mess, but it's our mess. And shoot, let's let's get together and figure something out. So. I don't yeah. know, it's encouraging in that way. Challenges are also a great time for transformation because it could be like, all right, uh, can we just do this one thing instead mm-hmm. of the other thing? And it's like, everyone's so crazy. And it's like, all right, just go ahead and do it. Yeah, like, okay. I don't have time to look run, at this. Run, run. Just <laughs> yeah. no. I guess the, but the fear I have is that oftentimes when these cri- moments of crisis happens, who suffers? Mm. Right. And it's, it's always the, it's the people who always suffer. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm fortunate to be incredibly privileged in so many different ways. I'll be fine. But, <laughs> and so I'll have windows to do things that I haven't been able to do because people aren't watching me the same way or they'll just say yes and just, just go, just do it, do it, Derek. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all these people who are going to be in the margins that are going to suffer 
and are going to suffer the brunt of these changes. And that's the part that I, I don't know what to do with. No. Um, and it's really challenging. Well, along those lines about um, who suffers, I think is tied to communications and how government communicates to its people is something that stories from the open gov and a lot of my work has been geared towards in terms of government's terrible at marketing, terrible at getting the message out there, especially mm -hmm. to those that need it. And I'd love to share a story with you guys real fast. I was saying a moment ago that I love reaching out to other nations and, and try to get them featured. Uh, this was uh, someone, oh, shoot, I'm going back to my memory bank. Uh, she was based, I'm going to say, on the west coast of Africa. And um, when the pandemic, when COVID really started coming around, there was a big disparity, disparity between the classes, mm. right? Very upper, high class, not even upper class. And then there was a lower class. And the folks in the lower class thought COVID was a rich person's disease because it required to travel when, in fact, it was the complete opposite. Right, it was actually the, the, the lower class in that nation that was actually being afflicted much more strongly about what was going on. And, and obviously, since the last few years, mm. we've, misinformation, disinformation has become paramount, sad, sadly, in, in our discourse. How do we make sure that going back to what you were saying, Derek, and I'd like to hear from you actually on this one because you brought the question. Oh boy, all right. <laughs> and you work for the government. I'm getting ready. What can the, the go government? <laughs> dun dun dun. What should the government do, from a communications perspective, to to regain that trust with those people that suffer? Who, and I'll give you an example real quick. I always find it fascinating, and I I, I do understand I'm rambling here and I got to stop. But as a Canadian, I'm always shocked when. I hear the lower class or those living in impoverished counties and so on are against, you know, social health care. They're the ones that are probably going to need the service more until I heard from a doctor who worked in the U.S. Government is run so poorly that they're like, you're already screwing up my welfare. You're already screwing up all these other things of mine. Now you're going to screw up my health care? No. I don't, and, and that's the, the perspective that are coming in on, on that side. There is a big disparity, particularly with a lower, and not lower class, but impoverished individuals, that when they look at government, they feel as though they keep getting screwed on every corner. So what do you do? So how do you fix government, Derek? Go. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Okay. Uh, Good question. <laughs> um, I think what, what would you do as a government employee? Like, and it's, not, it's just a brainstorming. Let's throw some, you know, lazy, uh, uh, what's the word that they use? Oh, cur curiosity. Lazy curiosity. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Um, I, I think, so at the heart of it is an issue of trust. Uh, and that trust stems from, I think, in many ways, poor communication, but also poor delivery. In, in fact, I think the delivery is actually a bigger issue than the communication. If things are being delivered well, the communication wouldn't be a problem. They, they wouldn't care. But, you know, delivery is not being done well, so therefore we need to communicate better about why delivery is not being done well. And so um, I think a lot of some of the ideas that were talked about here is where we need to go. And what I mean by that is you've heard me say this many times before, Richard. For me, government isn't public servants. Government isn't politicians. Or it, it is plus. Government is everybody. We are all government. We are all the government within our community. And 
how do we then empower us as a whole community to be part of developing the policy solutions we need to make our community better? So what that means is bringing the whole entire community into the process of developing and delivering services. Um, it means, and that is a long process, that takes time. It's about relationships. Um, and I mean, one of your bugaboos, Richard, is this idea of how much public servants move around, which gets in the way of that relationship happening, and I agree. And this is why centering it on the community, because people might move around, but communities, for the most part, don't. There's a, there's a certain um, stability to a community. So if we can bring communities to the center of the development and the delivery and the ownership of policies for that community, um, and that in some ways means relocalizing a lot of things, pulling it away from national levels and right down to the local community because it's much easier. It's just closer to the ground. It's, it's where you get sustainability. I think there's still roles for the federal level around coordination around scaling of expertise, around economies of scale, but it's a support, it's not a driving role. The driving needs to be at the local level, the community level, where the relationships are, where the rubber hits the road. I don't know if that answers the question, I but, but I'd like to I'd throw like it back, to, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually wanna bring an idea that was brought up back and say like, I think something like a fail fest from a government standpoint can actually fix that. To give a concrete example, um, you mentioned like, yeah, this was a West African nation and it was like, um, the lower class who thought that, but ultimately from a global standpoint, it's always the oppressor versus the oppressed. And it's always mm. the oppressed who doesn't trust a major institution because you are the oppressed. Um, in the South Bronx, it has one of the highest asthma rates across America. Um, at one point, I think it was just like North America in general. And that's a result of environmental racism. Highways built through communities of color, big trucks going through, high asthma rates when COVID came in, one of the deeply impacted communities in New York City was the South Bronx. So when you're talking about, you know, let everyone, let's get vaxxed, and you have all these like commercials coming out and all these educational and formal things, yeah, that community's like, yeah, we don't trust y'all, right? But I always wonder, and, and there's like an inherent lack of trust because of institutionally what's been done to that community to cause these high asthma rates to then cause this high impact on in, from COVID in the first place. But what would happen if the government came out and said, we made a huge mistake 50 years ago. Like we mm. built highways across these communities and we never should have done that. Mm. Let's talk about that. And I know like there's a lot of thoughts about time and capacity and like how can we do that? But like if we had that conversation to actually start rebuilding the road of trust and then like then came out with like, oh yeah, and these are the ways we would love to help you take care of public health before the pandemic hit, I feel like there would have been a whole different outcome in terms of like trusting what the solution could be or trusting like, or trying to understand what the pandemic is as opposed to just being like, all right, well, you're the most impacted community, so here's how we need to fix it immediately. Like there was no reconciling why we are the most impacted community in the first place. So it's that like, that oppressor oppressed relationship, if we can just like, get in front of that and be like, we were the oppressor, my bad. Like, let's talk about that. I think that's part of it. And we don't feel safe enough to do that quite often. I'm gonna go to Jessica real quick on this one because Jennifer mentioned something in our interview. Oh no, good. Oh, you're good? Yeah, All right. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm getting ready for a response. <laughs> uh, that the community as a whole, particularly cool for America, but I'm assuming this is true for the US digital response, in the last few years has developed a little bit more clout 
hmm. right? You know, right now, like it was to be like, we're, we're suggesting things to the government, but now they're coming to us a little bit or they're listening harder to the suggestions that we give. Have you experienced some of that, that now that they're coming to you for that? We are two years old, so we are definitely mm. a, a relative newer, but, but we are demand driven. So to us, we only enter the conversation uh, for the most part when a government or NGO reaches out to us and says, hey, we could use support. And that's been important to us because the, the, I think the counterpart that we saw was a lot of hack days and other efforts that um, kind of popped up in a vacuum and said, we'll solve the problem that we've decided is the problem, which actually gets a little bit at what you were just talking about, which is like, you have to agree on the story mm. in order to write the next chapter. Um, yeah. And so one way that we have found to agree on the story is to try and be invited in. Uh, as a starting point so that we are then able to to work together. Um, the second part of your question, which I think is or was maybe implicit in your question, is uh, do you find yourself getting invited to more rooms or having slightly more power than you otherwise did? Yes, I do believe that that's true. And I want to actually give a shout out to a lot of the public servants that that I know because what that requires is, and we talked about this yesterday, vulnerability. It mm -hmm. really, really requires a deep yeah. vulnerability. It requires a willingness to have trust. It requires, on the part of both the communities that they're serving mm -hmm. and on the public servants who are serving them, uh, a certain openness to the story going a little bit differently this time than it went the last time. Uh, and yeah. that, like, to me, that is so precious. That openness, that willingness to consider something from a fresh perspective, to invite someone new in, to consider a different way of writing the next chapter of the story. Yeah. And um, I hope we can all kind of hold that with that degree of reverence. It's certainly something that we try to do organizationally, and I feel it in this community, that we do try to give a certain amount of reverence to the people who say, yeah, I, I, I do want to get this right. Okay. Mm. You're a student, Maya. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and not only just a student, but you're students be trying to become or be, you, you are a data scientist. I am. Yes. Graduated 2021. I want to talk and t take a few moments to talk about a lot of people are mistrustful mm. of really new technology. I, the analogy that we use a lot of the times is banking. Like in the 90s, people were like, there's no way I'm putting my banking information <laughs> online or buying things with my credit right. card online. But maybe some of the same thing is happening right now with AI, machine learning, all that, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's playing a big role in sentiment analyses and all right. that kind of stuff. I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about that in terms of its role with government and how it can be done in a way that's not going to freak people out that Skynet is coming or the matrix is on us. Wow, figure out what's the, kind of the next era of data. But I think in terms of AI and machine learning right now is really understanding that government has an upper huge opportunity to get ahead of it and setting the rules. I think right now there are a lot of different stakeholders who are in the game and, and kind of setting the rules. And I know Derek and I were talking about Web3 and the ways that individuals are going to that because that's a way that they can be individuals, own their own data, 
and then do what they want with that. And so I think there's a huge opportunity where government can partner with AI and machine learning and say, hey, we understand you want your respect and, and your data and your privacy, but we're here to kind of guide you along that, whether that's a one-stop shop. I heard throughout these past two days about how can we get all these government services down to a 12-minute process so you don't have to keep on entering the same information. Yeah. I think that's a great way AI, machine learning, mm -hmm. can really just solve that issue and, and establish that trust and say, again, we're partnering w with you and protecting your data because a lot of things with machine learning and AI is sometimes you don't know where it's going to go. And that is a scary process, and I think government can play a really good role in saying we, we're here to just guide you but not necessarily determine what you want to do with it. Do you think maybe there's a lot of fickleness when it comes to this world? Because a lot of the people that are afraid of data and AI, they also have Alexas at home and Google <laughs> phones and Fitbits right. and so on, right? <laughs> and they really probably don't realize what's really happening mm -hmm. from a technology background from a third party who mm -hmm. has, for the most part, zero accountability to the citizen. Zero transparency. Mm -hmm. Zero transparency, yeah. exactly. And goals to make money. Yeah, exactly. Do, how do you, you personally, because you're close, so close, yeah. to, how do you reconcile that a little bit? It is, I mean, fickle's probably the best word for it because I think it goes back to that curiosity and failing fast. Um, that is probably the best way the government can approach it, only because it's, you have, again, your Alexas, the Fitbits, that you can't see your data, but there is a higher standard for government that already comes into it. But we saw with just, different whistleblowers coming in and even the public being like well wait a minute my face is where with who like <laughs> and i can't even see it and so <laughs> i i do think there's a window of opportunity for government to be like well actually like we're already at this high standard we can help y'all out and then here let us know give that feedback loop of the ways that we can really do better and and, and also protect y'all in the ways that you want so it, it will be an interesting um, opportunity, but also challenge within that because it's so, I mean, the machine will take on for itself. So sometimes you can't even control it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. I would yeah. try that. <laughs> Next year's summit brought right, to you yeah. by <laughs> the machines. <laughs> Do not come to mind. Be happy. <laughs> Well, and I mean, this is like any new technology. The first bit of it is this crazy wild west. And we're seeing this right now with AI. We're seeing this with a lot of Web3, mm -hmm. with crypto and blockchain. It's, it's just crazy wild west stuff right now. But I think there is a lot of potential. I mean, Richard, you know, one of my heroes is Crystal Ver from Estonia. And mm. a lot of the stuff that he's thinking around how AI could be leveraged. Because I think the potential of AI is it solves a problem that we have right now, which is that we have way too much information, way right. too much data that we know what to do with. I agree. And AI helps us cut through the noise and find the information that we actually want. And I think that's the real potential. And government is a great place for that because, you know, there's government is this crazy mess. And uh, I think, so I was part of a foresight group in government a couple of years ago. And one of the, my biggest aha moments that stuck with me was this realization that personal AI, the potential of personal AI might make a lot of the problems government has redundant because right now government's a mess. It's just a complete mess uh, in terms of, just the data and there's just a lack of communications everything's siloed mm -hmm. and i mean you talked about earlier this idea of like how do we do services in 12 minutes well things have to talk to each other and like people inside government has no idea how government works let alone the average person <laughs> um, but what ai personal ai does is it allow because we're trying to how do we make this stuff more efficient and in some ways a personal ai system would make that all redundant because the ai could could sift through mounds of data and find the information you need and realizing that moving forward maybe we need to start designing 
services for AI and machine learning? Um, how do we make you know rules as code, policy as code, mm -hmm. so that it can be read by machines, and therefore the machines can do the hard work of navigating government and make it really easy. And that was Christo that's Crystal Vera's vision: is that people they'll have a personalized they'll, government will become personalized. That you'll have a personal experience with government. Government will be in your pocket, in your house, and that can be terrifying. But it also means that when you need help, it's there, and it's there to give you exactly what you need. And there's all this, all these services, all these programs that go unused because people don't know they exist. Problem solved. Your personal AI will get you the information you need when you need it. That's the potential of AI. I mean, there's obviously lots of dark sides to it, but it's there. We just have a lot of work to get there yet. I love the conversation that happened during the lunch today with Wendy De La Rosa. And obviously, you know, Derek and I are Canadian, so we're not privy to all the U.S. programs that are taking place. But one of the things that she had mentioned is that there was all this unclaimed money, the income. Oh, child income. Child, is that Earned what it was? Earned income tax credit. Earned was income tax credit yeah. was the one mm -hmm. she was talking about. But because it was geared for an audience that for the most part does not file taxes, does not have a need to file taxes, they don't even know it exists. And, and, and I think you're right, like being that personal advisor could definitely help, but I think it's most, more anything else is, it's very scary because television, movies, well, I mentioned Skynet right. and ma the Matrix <laughs> as the introduction to this question. Um, so it'll be interesting how things develop, but it's nice to know that a person like Maya is making sure oh, that Skynet yeah. at the very least might be benevolent. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but we're at the one hour mark right now. And I want to just go around the table real quick and give a chance for everybody as we wrap up here to give their final thoughts, uh, before we close the conversation here and, and we'll go sort of in a, a clockwise conversation, uh, clockwise, uh, direction here. And we'll start with you, Jessica, like. The conversation here today that you took back or from the event itself that you want to take back, what really stands out or sticks out in your mind? What really sticks out to me is that this is a community and that this is a community with an open door. So the, the real work of civic technology historically, I think, has been marked by having a group of people who deeply care about the way that our shared experiment of government <laughs> delivers for our shared community around us. Um, and that because we view it as a shared project, we all do want to get together and share lessons, share questions, share failures, whether on stage or late at night in a fail fest. Mm -hmm. um, and that what is really reassuring about coming here and I've been coming since 2016, um, so I'm certainly not the originator, but I've been to a few of these. Um, what's really remarkable is that every time I come, it feels like coming home to see familiar faces, mm -hmm. and then it feels like my community has grown bigger because there are always new faces, mm -hmm. bringing new energy, bringing new experiences. And that's what I kind of cherish and really hope for us collectively moving forward is that we continue to trust and share and learn from each other and hold each other accountable while always, always, always leaving the door open for new people, for people from our communities, for people who come in with different perspectives or from different organizations to walk through it and come join us in that mission that we never view it as a closed circuit uh, and we continue to grow. No, that's, that's really good. I think something that being my first summit in, in person that was exciting to see is that customer service is always embedded in tech. And so in order to keep it a customer service, really thinking that we need those different perspectives and individuals from Jessica to Taeja doing their work. And, but how 
can we keep growing those different perspectives with something that has to and is evolving so we can get those iterations in that feedback loop. And so I really appreciate seeing that and encourage that um, those different opinions are invited because that's how the feedback loop grows. Yeah. Big, big snaps to <laughs> both of those. Um, I want to say systems change because um, we talked a lot about like services, um, government as a service, digital services, um, even talked about AI. And for all of that to fundamentally change how we approach it, it does require that systems change. Mm -hmm. And at the core of the conversations, we talked about code design and everything involved from that. But it does involve keeping that door open for other people to come in. Um, I have a tech company, but like we're completely designed inherently differently and that's because i come in with a different perspective as like a black woman who grew up in a hood no tech background whatsoever so mm -hmm. like my approach isn't the same as like a silicon valley approach mm -hmm. like so i think the more we create opportunities for people like me and others to actually be a part of the solution right. the more we can actually have a personal ai that actually solves for us and it isn't scary or like trying to like mine our data for anything crazy right. because we have other people coming into the feedback loop Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is beautiful. I'm like, geez, I don't know how to follow up on that. Um, yeah, I, I have so many takeaways. Yes, 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 absolutely, <laughs> to everything that's been said. Um, I, I guess my biggest takeaway is realizing that at the heart of all of this is, is people. Um, mm. and, and this idea that if we can put people at the center uh, and come together as human beings to solve these problems, to understand, to appreciate, to sit with, and then find through that journey find solutions, everything else will work itself out in a wash. Um, and just seeing so many examples of that and then meeting humans, like meeting all of you. I, I didn't know any of you. I, Richard, I guess I've known you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry. <laughs> I wish I didn't know you. <laughs> but uh, no, it, meeting so many amazing people uh, that, you know, these relationships, I hope to stay in contact with all of you. Please. And, um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I think that, you know, it, this is a, a community that's growing, but yeah, the human-centeredness really came forward for me. For me, it's I'm going to take a very different direction than all of you, and it, I'm going to say it's the hockey stick. Mm. And by that, I mean... You're so Canadian. I, well, <laughs> right? Well, you know, I'm not only Canadian, French-Canadian. Oh, so, boy. You know, Rocket Richard and all that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but this is something that... I got to say, I, I had to look inward a lot of times when it comes to open government, open data. And I'm not saying this because I'm an elder statesman in the space and I've been doing it for a long time. But there's a few of us in the community that are like, we've been busting our hump for a long time. Mm -hmm. And man, it's hard to look at it and say, how much have I changed? Mm -hmm. And and it's and the hockey stick in terms of sort of like being logarithmic or exponential in terms of impact. And I knew it was gonna take a long time. I was ready for it to take a long time. I didn't expect it to take this long to see just even some small changes. Yeah. But now, talking about clout a little bit, which is why I went back to it, and, and, and the fact that there's more faces. For the longest time, Derek, I'm sure you'll attest to this, and I'm sure everyone here that's gone to a hackathon in 2014 <laughs> and in 2015, you always saw the same faces all the time. It's, it's gaining main, becoming mainstream. It's starting to finally hit that chord and that note. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic. I don't know if it's because we finally got the right message or if it's finally because people are just tired. Mm. But for me, that's the thing that 
you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to come here just personally is, aside from the fact that it's fun, <laughs> but I wanted to see the impact that mm -hmm. should I stay in the space or not and tell these stories because I'm tired. I really yeah. am. And, and, yeah. and, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's great to see this kind of stuff. And hopefully we can bring some of that energy back in Canada. Obviously, we're losing a wonderful uh, Canadian public servant to uh -huh. apolitical real soon. So those forces are leaving us. But at the same time, it's nice to see that the hockey stick, you can start to see it on the graph in terms of impact. Mm -hmm. So with all that said, let's give a big round of applause for... Uh -huh. Tyesha, Maya, and Jessica for joining us. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Happy Summit. Absolutely. I mean, I guess we got to promote like, you know, for next year. Everybody who's listening, make sure you come next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and go yes. to, to all of them. Make those connections now that you can. Um, and obviously, I said it about 30 minutes ago. I'm going to say it again. Obviously, Jessica, Maya, Tyesha. Um, definitely, I'd love to do another sort of roundtable sometime in the future for yeah. the podcast, the five of us. We're all one year out, you know, how have things changed in the <laughs> last year? When Skynet has taken over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we can blame Maya. Right, more confusing. <laughs> Artificial <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> so, uh, as usual, everyone, thank you for listening. And until next time, let's make it open. You have been listening to Stories from the Open Gov. If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and share. Let us know in the comments if there are topics, stories, or people you would like us to profile. Otherwise, you can contact Richard and Derek on their Twitter, at Richard Pietro and at Derek Alton. Thank you for listening.